the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. A few weeks ago, Dan Senor was my guest, and I asked him, Dan, what is the best book for Americans to read about Israel who know a little bit about the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and they know the Netanyahu years, but they don't really know much about the state. And he didn't hesitate. He said, Daniel Gordas, a concise hist- Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn. Daniel Gordas joins me now. Good morning, Daniel. Welcome, and thank you for being my guest. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you. Well, let me tell you about Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn. I have never in my life listened to a book, uh, an audio book, twice back to back. I am now on the third listen to Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn, because, boy, does it fill in the gaps that I did not have. As I said, I'm, I'm pretty well educated. I knew a lot about Israel, but I'm not Jewish, and I didn't know about anything from 1897 to 1948. How important is it for the contemporary American to understand that history, Daniel Gordas? Well, it's just, if you think about the American analogy, for example, how is it important to know about the debates that the founding fathers had in America before 1776? If you don't know anything about what happened before 1776, you can't really say anything about why the United States exists. You can't say anything about its dreams, about its purposes, about the reasons that the women and men that created the country got together to do it. And the same thing is true here. Israel did sprout out out of nowhere. The Jews didn't pick the Middle East specifically out of nowhere. Uh, there's a whole history here of why the Jews felt they needed a country, why they believed that country needed to be, and they had a right for it to be here, and so on and so forth. And one can disagree about many different political issues in Israel. A lot of Israelis disagree. Uh, but I think one does have to understand the origins of the story, as in any story, in order to be able to understand how it's playing out now. Now, Daniel, you're very, very rigorously fair. Like, you're not one of these people who say there was nobody in Palestine before the Jews from Europe came into the theater. It's really relentlessly objective. But you do begin at the beginning in sort of uh, prehistory, right up through the demolition of the Second Temple by the Romans and then up to the coining of the term Palestine in 160. How much does that matter when we have the anti-colonialist rhetoric of today, knowing that as you put it, the Bible is sort of a diary of the Jewish people. You read this book very carefully, my friend. But in any event, um, what I would say is I think it matters. It matters a lot. First of all, again, regardless of what one feels about the issue now, regardless of one where where one is holding on one particular political issue or military issue or whatever, one of the things that's important in understanding any conflict, by the way, it can be a conflict between two siblings. It can be a conflict between partners. It can be a conflict in business. Try to understand where the other person's coming from, what the other person sees, what the other person believes. Uh, and so this whole colonialist notion, which is, you know, as you point out quite correctly, is becoming a huge issue, especially now. Um, we'll come back to colonialism and whether or not that's a term that's applicable in a second. But why did the Jews come here? Uh, and the reason the Jews came here is because 
Now, yes, the Bible is um, the diary of the Jewish people to a certain extent. I think that's an interesting, that's a thoughtful, for me at least personally, a useful way uh, to think about it. But the Bible is also a book with some historical record, obviously. The Jews were here for a very long time. That does not give them the right to the land in and of itself, no question. If the, if the Norwegians were to come and say, every place that the Vikings ever had, we wanted back, that's ludicrous. I'm not, I don't use that analogous in order to say, well, we had it once, so we get it back again. But why did they choose to come here? One needs to understand what was in their heart, what was in their soul, in their mind. They had never really left. They'd been forced out temporarily, but it was always in their own mind temporarily. And again, you can disagree with them. You can agree with them. You can partly agree with them. But one can't understand the passion of the Jewish people for recreating their state specifically here without understanding how in our tradition, this was home. This is where our people was born. By the way, that's what the opening sentence of the Israeli Declaration of Independence says. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Um, and in order to understand why the Jews feel the way that they do, or some Jews, not all Jews, but why Israelis especially feel about the land of Israel the way that they do, uh, understanding our longstanding connection to this land is critically important. Now, here you mentioned the issue of colonialism. And here I'll only say for colonialism, one has to be sent. In other words, the, the, the British sent colonialists to North America. Uh, the Spaniards spent, sent colonialists to South America. Uh, the French sent colonialists to North Africa and many other places. Nobody sent the Jews. It's not colonialism. One can argue the Jews have done this wrong. You can argue the Israelis have done this incorrectly. You can argue that the Israelis are mishandling the current war in one way, that way, or another way. That's all legitimate. But the whole idea of colonialism means some empire sent you there to expand its borders, to expand its land holdings. Nobody sent the Jews anywhere. The Jews went back because it was the only place that they could possibly imagine where the world might finally leave them alone. They had two very incorrect assumptions towards the end of the 19th century. One was they would go back there and the world would leave them alone. And the other was, because they would finally have a country of their own, the rest of the world would stop seeing them as being so odd and so always latching on to whatever country was willing to hold on to them. And therefore, anti-Semitism in Europe and the rest of the free world would disappear. Neither of those two things happened. And in that, Theodore Herzl got things entirely wrong. Um, he, he was wrong that the world would accept the Jews and that the local Arab population, which he knew very well existed here. He just thought it would be embraced by the Arab population, and we weren't. Um, and he also thought that once the Jews had a country of their own, the Western world would no longer perceive the Jews as anomalies and would therefore stop hating them. Um, and as we are tragically able to see these days, that didn't happen either. Daniel Gordon, if we gave sort of the basic eighth grade test of American history to American kids today, they might know who Ben Franklin is. They might not know who John Jay is. There would be a spectrum of, of knowledge. What level of historical knowledge do Israelis have about the 50 years prior to the founding of the state. I'm just curious, generally in Israel, yeah. are they as educated about their history as Americans are about our history? Well, Israelis, like Americans, aren't monolithic, right? There are some Americans who got really good educations, who went to really good high schools or good colleges, who could tell you a lot. And there's some Americans who would think Ben Franklin, something about, you know, a kite and lightning, and that would be the end of it. There's a lot of Americans that never heard about Alexander Hamilton until they went to Broadway. Yes. So, I mean... Um, and, you know, so Americans aren't monolithic and the French aren't monolithic and the Germans aren't monolithic and the Israelis aren't monolithic. I would say as a whole, Israelis tend to know a little bit more about their pre-country history. 
um, largely because, of course, it's in the lifetime of their grandparents. There's still many people around today who are alive who fought in our war of independence, which is obviously not the case uh, in Israel. But I would say uh, it's not nearly as good as it needs to be. 2023 um, is almost over, so we can say was, I think. 2023 was the worst year in Israel's history by far because between January and September, it was ripped apart by internal divides over revising the Israeli judicial system. And that made many people go back to the Declaration of Independence for the very first time and read it and read it carefully and ask themselves why their country was founded. And now that we are really in an existential war, which I don't think most of our viewers and listeners understand why this war is existential, and we can come back to that. But now that we're literally in a war for our lives in this country, um, again, a younger generation has been forced to ask ourselves, so how did we get here? Why does this matter? Who said what? I think we're better educated, but we're also learning very quickly that we also, like Americans, have a much better job to do. Well, what I think is, is crucial for people to understand, Daniel Gordas, is that for those 50 years before 1948, there wasn't consensus. There were people who wanted to establish a Jewish state. There were people that wanted to establish in Palestine a center of Jewish cultural excellence. There were statists and anti-statists. There were religious Jews and anti-religious Jews. There's David Ben-Gurion, and there's Menachem Begin, and there's Jabotinsky, and there are all sorts of different people. It's a wild mosaic. But what I wanted to ask you most importantly is in the book you say that at times of crisis, the Jewish people have always come together. Is that true today, and do you think that will endure in the next? It's The, the war is now 10 weeks old. It could go 10 months. It could go a year and a half. It, it's a big war. Right. Do you think they will hold together? Uh, first of all, you're right. I think the answer is yes. In this war so far, Israelis have found themselves very much pulled together. After our worst internal divides in history, we are probably more united as a people than we ever were. If on October 5th, we were unprecedentedly torn apart, and there were people that were talking about the possibility of civil war, then on October 8th, the day after the attack, um, I think Israelis were together and still remain together more than ever before. Is that going to last forever? Look, it's not going to last forever because part of the reason that we're so united uh, is the crucible of this existential threat. There are guys in tanks who voted for Netanyahu, and there's guys in tanks who would never vote for Netanyahu. There's guys in tanks who are religious and have one view of Israel, and there's guys in tanks in the same exact tank who have a very different vision. As long as they're in the tank fighting for themselves and their parents and their siblings back home, there's going to be a certain amount of unity. Now, Hugh, I think what we're beginning to see 10 weeks in uh, is that the objectives of this war, which are twofold, destroy Hamas utterly, completely render Hamas non-existent. Um, that is proving a much more elusive goal of this war than Israel's leaders thought it would or said that it would. I think they were wrong. They thought it would be okay. I think they, they just surprised by how powerful Hamas is. And the other was getting the hostages back. Tragically, the majority of hostages that we're getting back now we're getting back as bodies. And um, the idea that we're going to restore all the hostages also seems like a very far-fetched notion. Um, and just in Haaretz this morning, Haaretz is Israel's kind of paper of record. The, United, the New York Times sort of speak of Israel, like the New York Times, a little bit left-leaning, um, like the New York Times, somewhat controversial at times. But it is Israel's paper of record, basically. And just this morning in Haaretz, there was a headline that said, um, Israelis beginning to re regroup as the ends of the war begin to appear unreachable. Um, and therefore, I think once Israelis decide that mm, we may not be able to pull this off, we're going to see bickering. It's very important to remember from the point of view of Israelis, we have a son in the war. 
Uh, you know, we have a son who's very much in harm's way. This particular week, he's not in, um, which is why I'm able to be in the States. I would never leave if he was actually, you know, in combat. But um, I'm in the States this week because he got a week off. Um, but as one of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israeli parents who have kids in harm's way, one of the things that we're struggling with is that the people that got us into this horrible mess are the people who are actually running the war now. Now, the people who so misjudged Hamas, the people who got it all wrong on intelligence, the people who put the army in all the wrong places, the people who trusted that a high-tech small army was sufficient and said that a big, large armed army wasn't that critical, the people who got everything wrong are the people who are now running this business. If they were running it and they'd proven successful in six or seven or eight weeks, you'd say, okay, they got it wrong, but they regrouped. But I think the longer this war goes on and the more it appears to Israelis that, wow, we may not actually achieve these aims, the more it's going to dawn on Israelis, wow, the people that got us into this mess through utter incompetence are the people who are actually running the war now. And the, the patience for having bodies come back day after day, four, six, eight, four, nine, seven, that sort of number, but it's a grinding number of people, um, the patience may run out. And when that happens, politics will bubble to the surface and divisions will return. When you have an existential war, and I believe that as a Gentile in America, since the GoPro pogrom erupted, you wrote a lot about Kishinev changing the opinion of Jewry worldwide. That was a very famous, infamous pogrom where, what, 100 people were killed and thousands were terrorized? Doesn't this change? Uh, it was actually less. It was, a few dozen, it was a few dozen people. It had an outsized impact because of poetry that was written about it and kind of captured the imagination of Jews and said, this is no way for a people to live. So the actual numbers were relatively small, but the impact on the soul um, was huge. So what do you think relatively? This is so much bigger. What is the impact on the Israeli soul going to be? We'll talk about the politics on the other side of the break. I think it will fundamentally transform it. But what's happened? What do you think? It's a wild guess. It's 10 weeks, but it's got to be... Uh, fundamentally uh, different now. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's very hard to describe how Israel feels. Even I have one kid who lives in L.A. right now. Um, and obviously, he speaks Hebrew. He was raised in Israel. He's thoroughly Israeli. He reads the Israeli news. But he came to visit us a couple of weeks into the war. And after we'd been in our house for a day or two, he said, you know what, Mom and Dad, you can understand exactly what's happening from afar because you read the paper, but you can't understand how broken this country feels. Look, when al-Qaeda decided to attack New York City, um, it decided to attack the World Trade Center specifically because the World Trade Center was the fundamental emblem of what made America great. It's financial success, uh, you know, Manhattan, all of that. Um, what, what Hamas did on October 7th was to hit Israel in its softest point. Israel had made the Jewish people one fundamental promise. The attacks on innocent Jewish civilians, mass death, rape, beheading, mutilation, burning of bodies, the things that happened all over Europe between the mid-1800s and then, of course, culminating in the Holocaust, that is done. That is over. Because we have Israel, that cannot happen. Europe will not come here. You, Europe came here. Women were raped and things were done that I won't even begin to discuss on this program. Bodies were burnt so badly, people had no idea that they were even human except by doing some sort of DNA test or, or whatever. People were literally beheaded. And as you pointed out, you called it the GoPro pogrom. They took pictures of themselves beheading bodies. I've unfortunately seen this 47-minute oh. movie that journalists have been shown. Um, and you literally see a person holding a helmet and a head 
and taking a knife and just sawing off the neck of a, of a soldier. I mean, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. Um, it's brutal. But why did they do that? Why didn't they attack the tall buildings in Tel Aviv or whatever? Because the tall buildings in Tel Aviv are not the essence of what we are. The essence of what we are are women and men and children living in small little villages, rebuilding Jewish life and living. These were, by the way, left-wing people. These were peacenik people. They killed so many peace activists, it's impossible to count. But they didn't care about that because this was not about achieving peace. This was about hitting us where we live. This was about saying, you're wrong. The, 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 the fragility and the, the vulnerability and the potential victim but that was Europe, it's right where you are now. And that's what makes it existential. If we can't defeat it, then what we have to basically say to ourselves, our children and our grandchildren is, well, the purpose of the country proved not achievable. We're going to be vulnerable here just like we were vulnerable anywhere else. Uh, and if Israel can't convince its citizens that they are fundamentally safe, uh, it's going to be very hard to convince the wealthiest, most successful uh, you know, Israelis to stay here for the very long haul. Jewish courage has always triumphed and Jewish cohesiveness has always come together. But this existential threat we were talking about, how do you defeat that? I, I mean, you have to rip the tunnels out. You have to fill them with seawater. And then I think you have to go to war with Hezbollah, don't you, eventually? Yeah. I mean, look, there are 200,000 Israelis who are currently displaced inside Israel. They are refugees, but they're inside Israel because it's too dangerous to live along the Gaza border and it's too dangerous to live along the northern border. I mean, no country can allow that. If San Diego was being pummeled by people in Tijuana who had dug tunnels and accumulated mortars and were flinging things at San Diego, you know, how long would the United States military allow that thing to exist? And how much would the United States military care if people said, well, you're killing innocent Mexicans as that's happening? People would be sad about the innocent life, but they would say, this grew up in your area. This is going to be eradicated. That's the only way to think about what's going on in Israel. Israelis are not going to stop. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a timeline and there's a time ticking time, so to speak, a stopwatch of the international community, how long they're going to let us do this. There are, unfortunately, very high Israeli casualties coming back from the battles in Gaza. But yes, ultimately, Hezbollah cannot be allowed to be where it is now in complete violation of United Resolution 1701, which after the Second Lebanon War said they couldn't be anywhere within those five southern kilometers, and they're all there in, in Lebanon. Israel has a lot of work ahead of it. We probably tragically have many hundreds of casualties ahead of us. Uh, Israelis were asleep at the wheel for probably decades and allowed existential threats to grow on our south in Gaza, our north in Lebanon, and off to the east in Iran. There's an awakening in Israel. We can't live this way any longer. And the United States can think what it does. Europe can think what it does. But we're going to do here exactly what the United States would do if that threat was coming from Mexico or Canada. So, Daniel, the big head fake in history is that Sadat came and made peace with Menachem Begin. By the way, after reading your book, I want to learn more about Begin because he's a very interesting guy. I just know him from Camp David and, and the first conservative in the 82 Lebanon War. I just don't know much about him, but he's a very interesting man. And I learned that from your book. But the fundamental conception was wrong about what the Arab states wanted. And I and the Abraham Accords may have advanced that fundamental misconception as well. Hamas doesn't want that. I don't know that the Palestinian Authority wants that. They want to kill Jews. And that's the big difference between 10-6 and 10-8, isn't it? That there is no satisfying this element of the uh, Arab world. And I don't know how you get out of that. And does that mean Israeli politics will move even further towards a aggressive defense 
I'm not going to use conservative liberal because it's not really a conservative liberal argument. Right. It's it's about how powerful does the state become? Do you think it moves that way? I think it has to. Um, and I agree with you. It's not a matter of liberal or conservative or right or left. I mean, a lot of friends have said to me, well, we're all, we're all the Israeli progressives that I hear about. And I say, they're in the cockpits dropping the bombs. They're in the tanks firing the mortars. Because Hamas wanted to kill the children and the grandchildren of the progressives and the liberals and whatever, as much as they wanted to kill the children and the grandchildren of the right. And in fact, the kibbutzim that were attacked, as I mentioned to you before, are actually overwhelmingly much more left-leaning. They were not a stronghold of Bibi Netanyahu's voting bloc and so forth. Uh, yeah, so I don't think we're going to move to the right. We're going to move to being much more focused on defense. We're very fortunate that Arab states states actually very much wanted to make a deal with Israel. The peace with Egypt is held for 40-something years. The peace with Jordan is held well since 94. Uh, the ink on the UAE Accords, you know, the Abraham Accords, is not all that dry, and they've stuck by us. Uh, this probably erupted when it did because Saudi Arabia seemed very likely to about to normalize its relationships with Israel. Arab states have understood that Israel is here. It's here to stay. It's a huge contribution to the region. It's a protection against Iran. Um, but there's something about the Palestinian people that I believe, and I think increasingly number, increasing numbers of Israelis believe, has nothing to do with independence, nothing to do with a desire for a Palestinian state, and everything to do with the slaughtering of Jews. And now that Israelis left and right and religious and secular and young and old basically can't avoid that evidence anymore, um, yeah, I think Israeli politics and Israeli military policy is going to become much more hard-nosed not much, you know, well, we'll look the other way. We'll send them some more money. They won't fire that stuff if we keep them happy. No, they can't have it. And whatever it's going to take for us to make sure they don't have it is what we're going to do. It could take months. It could take years. Are you going to revise Israel a concise history soon? Because it's it's fundamentally different now. Yeah, it is fundamentally different. And I have another book that came out this last year called Impossible Takes Longer, uh, which is an analysis of how successful Israel's been 75 years in. And that came out right before uh, the judicial thing almost ripped Israel apart. And um, yes, so the answer is I very much would like to revise Israel, um, uh, the concise history. I think there's two major, there's three major pieces that have to get added to the book. One is in the Abraham Accords, which fundamentally transforms the Middle East because Israel's got uh, now a peace arrangement or normalization, whatever you want to call it, with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, changes the entire calculus vis-a-vis -vis Iran and so on and so forth. Then, of course, the judiciary, the judicial fight over the independence of Israel's judiciary, which took over basically from December of 2022 till September of 23, almost ripped Israel to shreds, shows both the fragility of Israel's judiciary and its democracy, but also the profound belief that millions of Israelis have and their commitment to it. That's a part of the story. And then this war. Uh, so the book does need to be revised. I don't know how quickly we'll do it. That's more up to the publisher than it is to me. Um, but I would imagine that at some point I'll get a call or an email and they'll say it's time for a couple more revisions. And I would be delighted and honored to do it. I would say, Hugh, you know, if everybody read the book as carefully as you, um, it would be an even more satisfying thing for an author. But to speak to someone like you who has read the book so carefully and intuited its message so deeply is unbelievably satisfying. And I just want to thank you for the heartwarming read uh, because for all the hundreds and hundreds of hours that go into writing a book, to have someone like you really take from it what you have is, is, is profoundly moving. It's beautifully done. And to interweave the story of the poetry of the movement, along with the blood, sweat and tears of the movement, and the very different faction, I now have a grip on it. Last question. Very last question, Daniel. Israel has always confronted its failures with a commission. 
and there was a commission after the 73 Concepcion or whatever it was called fell apart and Golda Meir stepped down. Who will lead that? Is there anyone in Israel that people would look to and say, or five of them, that they would look to and trust to examine what happened going and, and accountability? These commissions have typically been run by former Supreme Court justices. And if I had a guess, that would be the case here now. Again, it's not a it's not a slam dunk. The Supreme Court became a rather controversial body because of the whole judicial reform. Uh, but it'll be a person who's not a politician. It'll be a person who's not an academic in all likelihood. It'll be someone who's above the fray. That tends to be someone from the higher echelons of the judiciary. It is going to be, as they say, the mother of all commissions. There's a tremendous amount to investigate here. There may be more than one commission. We'll see. But this is going to be investigated deeply. And as you intimated earlier, the, pol the political earthquakes that are going to come from this are going to reshape Israel, not for months and not for years, but for decades ahead. Whatever Israel ends up looking like between now and as long as you and I are likely to grace this planet, um, Israel is going to be changed because of what happened on October 7th. I agree with that. As the Civil War was the second founding of the United States, I think 10-7 is going to lead to a second founding of Israel, and it will be interesting. And Daniel Gordis will be one of our interpreters of that. Daniel, Welcome back to the States. Have a good trip and safety to your son. Prayers for everyone in Israel. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, Hugh. It's a great honor to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.